Yo, what's going on people? It's been a little while, a month or two. Um, welcome to the Hoops Fix podcast, episode 6. I'm Sam Nita, your host, a full-time British basketball advocate. I'm feeling a little bit tired this morning. I just got back from a weekend away uh, in Loughborough and Leeds with Midnight Madness. So I didn't get until 2am last night, so I'm just shaking off the cobwebs a little bit and trying to get this podcast online. We actually recorded this on Thursday, which was after GB had played Bosnia and Herzegovina um, at the Cobb Box. Uh, and Mark Clark, you know, I would hope that you've heard of him. Uh, he is the director of Barking Abbey Basketball Academy in East London, which is actually the GB Regional Institute. Uh, the former GB women's head coach, uh, used to also coach in the BBL, um, and of course is the father of GB starting forward Dan Clark, um, and also GB senior women's player Ella Clark. So uh, his family has a strong basketball tradition. Anyway, uh, for the first time, I managed to keep it to an hour. Uh, we were we were under a few time constraints, um, which means that actually there was a lot of stuff that I would have loved to have gone into that we didn't get a chance to. Uh, but then at the same time, we did speak about a lot of interesting things. Um, and I think Mark has a very interesting perspective um, and good view on things. So it's always a pleasure to talk to him. Anyway, have a listen. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, we cover everything, uh, ranging from GB's performance against Bosnia and Herzegovina um, to what he's doing uh, with Barking Abbey, uh, to the fact that he's standing as a director for England Basketball uh, at the end of this summer. Um, so yeah, let me know what you think. As always, I am always contactable on my email, which is sam at hoopsfix.com, or on Twitter at hoopsfix, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash hoopsfix. Um, or you can just comment on the site. Um, I value your feedback massively. Uh, and it really uh, provides me with a bit of guidance and direction on where to go next uh, with these things. So, so far, it's been really good. Podcast is getting a lot of downloads um, and I'm really enjoying doing it. So, yeah, as always, let me know what you think um, and I hope you enjoy it. So here is is the conversation, episode six uh, with Mark Clark. Mark, thank you for joining us. <clears throat> so I just wanted to start... Um, by talking about how you first how you first got into basketball, how did how did it uh, all start for you? Um, I was fortunate enough that uh, when I was at uh, Borough Road College, um, I was with uh, some guys, uh, Mick Bear, Paul Stimson, and uh, the program there was uh, quite unique at the time in terms of the level, and that gave me access to Crystal Palace. Um, so, right from the beginning, I was fortunate enough to be involved in basketball at a decent level. So from that point on, I started to uh, coach the college girls team uh, and then got asked to work at Crystal Palace. And from then on, I just sort of took that sort of route. Were you, were you, did you ever start, were you playing originally? I, I played at Byron Road. I was, my, my first sport uh, when I went to Byron Road as a college was, was I was actually a, a rower. Um, but uh, I played British colleges. I wouldn't class myself as a, a top elite level player. But uh, made a choice, had a, ch- had a chance to perhaps work out uh, with, uh, with people like Mick and Paul at Crystal Palace or coach. And I was probably getting as much out of coaching as I was out of playing, so I decided to take that route then. What was it that you enjoyed about coaching? What drew you to it? Um, I, think, I think getting the best out of, the, you know, out of a team, being able to make decisions that help people get better, um, the leadership type role. Um, but the overall working as a group was the, the biggest thing. And obviously, you know, historically, you've always uh, you've always been involved with well, you you primarily been involved with females females as opposed to uh, males. Is that a conscious choice, or is that just how it's worked out? Um, I think I think to an extent, it uh, was a, a, a scenario that uh, I was working with the women at the higher level. Um, and got into coaching, if you want, at a high level that way. But you know, subsequently, I've worked with both men's and women's, and it's more the challenge that's uh, there. I mean, for, for example, when I went to, to the Leopards to be an assistant with Billy Mims, that was a great challenge, So, and a coaching challenge. So I enjoyed the coaching challenge as much as anything else, and I found it as rewarding both male and female. What, uh, what would you say are some of the highlights of your coaching career so far? Uh, you'd have to start by saying that coaching um, national teams is always a highlight. Um, being a coach uh, of your country is is, uh, 
is the biggest honour you can have. Um, I think that in terms of a highlight of that, winning the Commonwealth Championships when um, you know England's women's basketball was uh, starting to compete in 1991. Um, I still think it's the only time we've actually won an international uh, competition. And obviously taking the GB team to the A division uh, after starting the, after the GB program changed, if you want, in 2006. Those, those are two highlights from like national team stuff. But uh, club-wise, we took an English team to win uh, everything in, in the mid-80s, which was, again, phenomenal at that stage because every team had two nationals, two Americans uh, before, obviously, the Bosman stuff. That was, a, and again, a highlight because it was an English-based team. Um, I've, had the, I've had the great opportunity to coach both Ella and Dan in, uh, in competitive situations, which is always nice. Um, and I think winning the under-14s under with Dan was because that was like, quite a nice game and being in a major gym, like East London Royals was good. So, And then the other, the, like, the work we do at Parkinson's, taking kids from where they are you know, into the situation where they can move along and develop, like end up in the States, end up using basketball to really you know, talking about, uh, I wanted to ask you about sort of Dan and Ella, you know, how much of an advantage do you think it is uh, for kids having a basketball parent? Like, it seems like there are so many players uh, on the national teams or successful British players that come from that sort of basketball background. Um, you know, w- what is the advantage there? Uh, I think the only, the, well, the obvious advantage of being involved in a basketball environment is good, but the biggest advantage I think it gives kids is that in the same way as in Europe, kids get exposed to basketball at a very early age, kids in basketball families get exposed to basketball at an early age. So it's not just the coaching, it's being around it, understanding it, getting immersed in basketball. Both Dan and, and Ella would travel a lot to watch the Leopards play, for example, and you're watching and you're around great level basketball when you're very impressionable at a young age. I think that's probably the biggest Issue because I think any parent would do whatever they need to do for their, their kids. So in terms of taking them to sessions and all that type of stuff, um, but I think it's the environment. I think you, you then remove one of the barriers that our kids have of not really coming and, and from a basketball culture. Do you think both of them were just naturally drawn to basketball because they're around it so much, or was there any element of you kind of putting the ball in their hands a little bit? Uh, I don't think they were pushed. I think they decided to go down that route because both of them played other sports. I mean, Dan played rugby. Um, reasonably Ella's, Ella ended up being an international netball player as well as a basketball player so they have to make that decision because it's all very well introducing them but they have to want to do it so I think both of them uh, made that decision And how involved are you with their careers now? Uh, advising I think just being a parent like any parent would be because Dan's obviously in his mid-20s and Ella's just graduated school so obviously they can bounce stuff off both um, both me or Claire uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what they can and can't do. Obviously, you're at the uh, you're at the cockbox last night for the GB game uh, against Bosnia and Herzegovina. <laughs> what, what were your own thoughts on it? Um, I think two overriding things. I think one is that if you look at the Bosnia, who are apart from obviously the, the Teletovic, they have a superstar. Um, and it's good to see superstars playing for national teams, and I think that's 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 one of the things. But you've got, got um, a group of fundamentally sound players that can beat the floor, share the ball, work for each other, um, and understand basketball against a Great Britain team that yeah, it lacks some experience, but it's just their basketball culture. I think that's you know how many tough shots did they have to make compared to the tough shots we we made? We had probably more athleticism. And I think it's just frustrating that you see that where the GB team got to, it would have been ideal to bring in young players when you've got the old, your more experienced players that's still there. It's a disappointment that Pops isn't playing. It's a disappointment that Joel and Lowell aren't playing. It's always easier to introduce younger players when you've got more experience around them that are of real quality, of top, top level. Um, and again, it's not just the playing side, it's the, the how to be a top level basketball player. And I think that it's very hard when you're bringing young players in and they have to perform straight away. You know, you take that back to when uh, Dan and 
uh, Joel Freeman came into the GB team, they, they had Andy Betts and they had a lot of people like that where they could learn from, experience from, and, you know, help them raise the bar. You know, talking about your own GB experience, how, how do you look back on the, on those sort of three years uh, with the senior women's program back right at the start? Uh, with a great deal of pleasure because I think the uh, taking the program from nothing to, to to getting promotion to the A division was very fulfilling. Uh, giving young English players uh, the chance to play on a level playing field because of the way the program was supported. And also introducing people like Steph Collins to and Kim Butler to Great Britain, and they you know, they they really commit to the national team, and, and Steph still does. Um, so I, I think I left the program in a, in a pretty healthy position, um, and I think the foundations were there. And I think that on the women's side in particular, that you know that by qualifying this year with all the obstacles that were were there, uh, is, is a testimony to the sort of foundations that were put in place. Were there frustrations for you personally working uh, for the British basketball program back then? Uh, yeah, obviously there's always frustrations because um, the there's frustrations because you, you're trying, you, you believe you're trying to do stuff that not only will help the team win in that current moment, but you're hoping that you're taking the program so it can become sustainable. And I, and I think that's one of the things that was that was evident last night with the men. That there's an issue about is it sustainable? It's not about funding because a lot of these other countries have less funding than we have now, uh, but they have a sustainable program. So it's always disappointing to um, not see, um, uh, yeah, not, on the coaching side, not see more British coaches over the last eight years that have been developed into a scenario where they can at least assist a quality coach like Joe Bunting. And that's not to take anything away from Nate and, uh, and Alberto because they're both obviously excellent people. But it's disapp- it's disappointing in some ways that we haven't got more coaches that have developed into working with the senior teams. What uh, you know? What were the circumstances in the end around your resignation? Was that just a personal choice, or was there other stuff going on? Well, I think ultimately the the, the, the people responsible will have to take responsibility for performance and we got relegated that year now you know, I can put all sorts of I can gloss it all over and say well you know we played in January so we didn't have any NCAA players we didn't have any pro players well hardly any pro players um, because um, because of the, the fever experiment with the tournament in January but at the end of the day I mean I, I picked a group of players a group of players came and played and I still think we, we could have should have beaten Finland which, at home which was Met with still stayed in A division. Would GB and I have had a conversation about me coaching forwards? I think that was a point where they had to decide whether they were going to have a coach. The coach that coached after that was going to take the team all the way through to the Olympics. And so I'm quite happy to take the stance that I thought I could have done that, but I could take responsibility for failure. So when we discussed it, I, I agreed to resign. I think that they would, whether we'd stayed in the A division or not, they, they may have looked to, as they always should. I think that from a performance perspective, you should look to get better. Uh, would I have coached if we have stayed up? I don't know that. You'd have to ask, ask them. I was obviously disappointed after committing, you know, for four years, doing an enormous amount of work, finding players and getting them committed. But I didn't get any leeway around that one defeat, that one sort of failure. But that's what they're, they're in the position to make decisions. And I, but I still think I have to take responsibility for the defeat. And I hope people take responsibility for the defeats in, the, in this year. Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, it's not just a coaching scenario. It's everybody has to take responsibility. Obviously, with the you know with the current funding situation, do you think we're going to see the GB program existing after this year? Uh, I think we do um, because I think I think it'd be a very difficult conversation politically to have with FIBA to undo the work of having. And I think there's, as far as I'm aware, there's an agreement in place that says from 2016, whatever it is that or 15, um, there aren't England your teams and stuff, it all becomes Great Britain. How we organise that, I think, is um, there, are, there are people that are, you know, are paid to do that type of thing in terms of organising it. I think it's, um, it's going to be interesting politically. I think FIBA did an enormous amount of work supporting Great Britain to become Great Britain, if you want, and participate in the Olympics. And we're very supportive, offered all sorts of alternatives in, in helping in helping. Um, 
all sorts of perspectives in terms of offering Great Britain opportunities to develop. So I, I, I think it would be very difficult, politically very difficult, uh, to undo all that work. And I think we've chosen it. I think we're, it's almost a, us, us, are England going to consistently be a junior A division team? Possibly. Are Scotland or Wales or, or no, that, that, that I don't think they have the resources to do that. As a one federation, could be an A division team? I, I, I'd say you only have to look at the GB under 20 team this year, where even though they had some limited resources and limited preparation time, they sustained the A division status. And some Scots players over the last few years have made major contributions to that. I think it'd be hard for anybody to unpick what's done. I think we might very much disadvantage ourselves with with FIBA if that's the case. Um, will it make a lot of difference? I think it can make a lot of difference in terms of trying to maximise the limited resources we've got if we stay as one organisation. What would you like to see change, uh, you know, when you're talking about the overall state of, of basketball in the UK to develop a sort of high-performance pathway, something sustainable, you know, what, what would you personally like to see? Obviously, you know, you head up Barking Abbey, which is the GB Regional Institute, um, which plays a role in that. I think before, before you get into that sort of stuff, the, the level of that, 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 that debate, I think the work that the BBL's doing is, is really positive. I think that if a healthy top professional league is a must. And I think it's very easy to knock holes in the stuff that BBL has done in the past. Um, unfairly in many ways and I think but if they get uh, it keeps moving in the direction it is having a, a good level professional league where English players can play uh, as long as those teams play English players um, is, is a major part of that but I think if I think it has to go one or two ways I've all developed is done through those clubs so you have the elite clubs where the elite players go and they develop or if, if that, that's not going to happen in the short term I think the federation has to take a lead and that's when places like you know Barking need more support not necessarily financial just need more status need, we need to say there are five programs that we are going to say if you want to be on the national team that's that's where we think that's where we're saying you should go there's always going to be people who can't and we need to come up with ways of dealing with those but and supporting those players, but I think the, at the moment I think the BBL is doing a, doing a, doing a job improving what it does as a professional league. I don't know if it has the resources, time, effort, whatever it is, to necessarily spend enough money developing their own junior programs. They should be doing that anyway. If you want to get there quicker, I think the federation has to take a lead. I don't think the federation has taken a strong enough lead on it at the moment, um, and having the time, it disadvantages us being the Regional Institute. So. The- let me get this. The federation they give the BBL a license to be the professional league, right? So they could actually have quite a lot of input about what they do and what they're meant to be doing. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. It's basically, yeah, the EB licenses the BBL. Yeah, but the people make all the noise, but the people making all the noises at the moment about developing the game are uh, the BBL. Um, you know, I think that the work they've done that I've been obviously closely involved with with the women game is, is a strategic development and I, I think the Federation is the best place to do that uh, with the working with the leagues but um, there are, you only have to look across into Europe for successful models and it's one or the other you know, you have, when Spain wasn't a very strong, very very strong professional league, especially on the women's side, the Federation took the responsibility for developing and as clubs have grown, it's very much a club based um, club based development program Whereas in France, it's very much the inset and the large percentage of players go there. One of those models is the, is the way it has to work, I think. I don't think we can have, until, until clubs become more financially stronger and get more floor time on their facilities, all those types of things, I think the Federation has to provide opportunities for young, talented players. And there's all sorts of ways that you can put a financial model behind that to support it. And I know EB's looking at it, but we've been regional institute now for four years and as I say in some ways it's, it's harder being the regional institute than not well, why do you say that because you, you're, you you have to do things correctly and properly and you can't make outrageous claims and you can't uh, um, overtly recruit uh, whereas um, others can and others do um, and we have to rightly conform to any number of standards and I think you know, you, you, yourself, you've seen how 
when the elite league for academies, when that's standards are imposed, things get better. But then you've just got to take it to the next level and keep and, and make it harder for people to be at that level. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure. I think it's just strategic leadership. I think that. I think we need strategic leadership to say we are going to try and develop our national teams through a program of, of institutes or we're going to find a way to support clubs to do it. And I know the junior clubs, the better junior clubs are frustrated because they, they're, they're desperately trying to get things changed so that they can have more competitive games. And I understand the need for more clubs. I understand the, the sort of targets for participation I think are really important, but you can't lose sight of the fact you've got to look after your best players as well. When... Uh... Yeah, obviously, Barking Abbey is a, a regional institute. So the original plan was, well, I believe the original plan was that there were going to be multiple other institutes. Um, I know there was, yeah, there was talk of Bristol, Reading, like up north pl- uh, places. And it just hasn't happened. Do you, do you know why that is? Do you know exactly what's gone on there? I, I don't know across the board exactly what, what's gone on, but I know that some of those programmes have uh, completed their audit uh, from EB and nothing's happened. Um, programmes that are established have completed their audits and have offered to invest 200 250,000 pounds in staff and court time and no the regional institute program if you want that hasn't progressed I, I don't know why because we're not talking about eb or gb resources here we're talking about the resources that people are prepared to put in to support the federation well, what does it actually, for people that don't know, what does it actually mean uh, to be a regional institute? What differentiates you as a regional institute from anyone else? Uh, there are certain standards about numbers of hours of court time, quality of coaching, um, reporting information that goes back to the federation. Um, so it's basically a standards thing. You know, we have to comply, conform. Uh, when Ron Mutola was with GB, he initiated a pilot where we developed the standards jointly with GB, then we were audited, then GB and EB, it's a three-way arrangement, um, decided that we, are, we met the criteria, we're going to have a regional institute. We've been audited every year. Um, obviously, there are things you want to do better, so every year there's an improvement plan, etc. The disappointing thing this year, and I know that people are very, very tied up with the funding stuff, but the funding from the Federation to the regional institute is, is, is good, is relative, is nice, but it's not. It's less than ten percent of our overall budget. Um, and since that the money we have, we on the fourth year of the agreement, we've had no money because DGB have been unfortunate. You know, the UK sport have poor funding. Um, it's almost there's no money, so we're not necessarily being very proactive and taking it forward. I, as I said, I know EB is looking at it, and I know that, that, that everyone would like to move it forward, but. Um, it's a standard-based thing. I think at the moment the emphasis is coming from at least five or six of us as academies across the country that would like to be regional institutes, would like to be identified as the places for Great Britain players to go, and we're prepared to fund it. And then being prepared to fund it, um, what we really then need is, is, is all that standards work that's already been done to be implemented. Just need, again, strategic leads, I think, is the... Is the role and that's difficult because obviously the funding of the people in those posts at EB and GB is, is, is a bit uh, under threat obviously it's an area at the moment <clears throat> So rewinding back to this what, what, what was the motivation behind starting up Barking Abbey, how did the opportunity first arise and what were you doing before that? Um, I used to coach in my own time, even when I was coaching in the BBL with Billy Mims, um, whatever else that would be, finish work at 5.30 and get to practice at 6 every night um, with the BBL, and it was basically my own time that I coached. But then uh, I was working in local government. So, but beyond that, the, when I decided to leave that, um, there was the, the head teacher at Barking Abbey and the, the then director of sport were very um, keen to use sport to enhance the opportunities that kids had. So, they already had a soccer academy there, a football academy, um, which is slightly different because you're talking about about boys at that stage that had been cut by professional clubs at 15, 16, trying to get them back into proper, you know, full-time education. Uh, and that was relatively successful. And they saw basketball, especially as, you know, East London itself, the extended area, has a lot of tradition 
with you know people like Joe White, people like Humphlong, uh, and, and other clubs, they, they saw an opportunity to, to, to run a basketball camp. So we started. I don't know if they knew what they were letting themselves in for because uh, right from day one, we said we wanted to try and structure it around a European model in terms of hours on the court, etc. Um, and so, yeah, we're very demanding there, but they, 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 they are, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't have done this without the, the foresight of the head teacher, the foresight of the director of school. Um, and the, can, the, school, the school gives us more budget just to run our program than GB gives us. Um, and I think that tells you the commitment that the school has to. We've got on top of salaries because we have four, four full-time coaches now, but right from day one. And, and Radmilla Turner at the time was really supportive. Uh, Radmilla and, and Keith Mayer were very supportive of, of seeing if this program would work. And their involvement with the school was, was, was crucial because it was all positive. And then, um, but on an ongoing operational budget, we get more money from the school than we get from GB. Uh, and we justify that with the numbers of kids and the funding model that the school has in place works and there's no model, there's no reason that if you've got a head teacher that's as committed as ours that that model couldn't you know be duplicated across the country we've helped Leeds set you know their model up we've uh, helped uh, a number of different places set their programs up we're trying to help uh, Cardiff do something now because the model works can you explain a little bit about what the exact model is? Well, the model basically comes down to the fact that you know we're bringing in forty kids into the sixth form, um, but that's a, a sixth form that's like six hundred kids across the the, to- the total in the school. So our kids are dotted around in terms of class classes. So they're not exactly increasing the cost to the school significantly uh, beyond the normal education costs. Uh, and the way that education is funded here, there's an amount of money that comes in. And the head teacher, because he sees it as a priority uh, in terms of the wider remit of the school, um, would allocate some of that money that comes in very good for the basketball program. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are plenty of schools around the country that do it for all sorts of things, you know, music or dance and all that type of stuff. And he's doing it with, with, with basketball. So he now has um, basketball still has his football, boys and girls now, and girls football is really big at the school, um, especially with the Women's Premier League, etc. They're sort of supporting one or two of the teams in, in that with young players. Um, netball, we now have a judo academy. So we have overall, we have something in the region of between 150 and 200 academy students across the sixth form. And those kids are very motivated. The pathways are so connected to academic achievement as well that the kids are going to stay the full term two years and they're going to be successful academically, which is good for the school. Um, we've also now we've been able to extend it down so we take we can take uh, boys and girls in key stage four, so they can you know get and literally follow that European model of getting hours on the court um, from when they're fourteen. So how many hours are the kids getting? And what? Um, in terms of practice time, if you're taking ball on board everything, the uh, strength and condition as well as the, the te- technical, te- technical and tactical work, uh, they're on the floor for anywhere, you know, on, on average 15 hours a week in terms of prep plus games, so which what is, is similar to your European time models. Obviously, long term, are you thinking that you'd love to have a professional club at the top in the BBL that's linked to the whole thing? Yeah, well, obviously, we, we yeah, people know that we um, we thought we had a, a very, very, very good partnership with some very um, well-known basketball people from this from Europe and the states. And when we put the East London Royals um, bid together and were successful in achieving a franchise, it remains a frustration that we weren't able to to manage the finances of that. I still think that that um, timing maybe was the biggest negative in terms of their, the, the the investment view. Um, and while I've got a lot of res- the BBL models, etc., some are working very, very well. We, it was a slightly different model, it had, and it had European aspirations. And uh, I, I don't think it's still dead in the water. I think London's more than big enough to absorb two or three uh, professional teams if we do the right thing. So I, I, I think ultimately, um, in the same way, I think that the BBL is when, it, when its clubs grow and the way they grow will be the, the place where the, the best junior players go. Um, we're almost doing it the other way around. We've got a lot of the best junior players. It would be great to have that professional outlet. And we're trying to do that now. We've, we've looked at different ways of doing it. Um, we've got a very healthy relationship with Crusaders and Jesse Sargent down in Kent. Uh, I'm finding that a little bit frustrating in terms of the barriers that, you know, the, obviously England Barcelona almost did, you know, through Crusaders out of the league last year, which was, 
short-sighted um, and probably through miscommunication both ways. But I think there's an opportunity there to get this part of the world, if you want, Kent and Essex and East London in, in, into an environment where there's a, a, a very strong professional team that compete at the best level. So from an outsider's perspective, what happened with the Royals? Where did it all go wrong? You Obviously, you had a franchise the BBL was expecting you to join the league and, and then, yeah, it didn't happen. So what, what, what did happen? We had, um, we had an ongoing relationship uh, with um, a professional agency from Europe that we'd had for a number of years and that was helping us place players and was giving players uh, from Barker the opportunity to go to a number of the exposure camps in Europe, etc. And they wanted to have a professional team in London. Um, they, for, for reasons that, that only they were know, decided that they weren't, weren't in a position to commit that amount of money. Um, at the time, we also had a very good relationship with um, the Benetton Club in Treviso. And then they found an alternative. We were going to do something through them. Um, but then again, and for our agent, agent-like links, um, we introduced uh, when that was looked like it was going wrong the BBL gave us an extra year and over that extra year we did introduce someone else another um, person from the sports business and the sports agency stuff in the States who see London as a real opportunity longer term um, but want to do it properly so when, when we got through the discussions etc they did commit some finance but then when it came to the decision to say yes or no they decided to, to, to say no uh, and we, we weren't I don't think uh, Lloyd Gardner and I were in a position to run the academy, run a BBL team, run X, Y, and Z without that financial backing. So that's why we had to to say no, uh, as opposed to just sort of trying to muddle on. As some, I don't think it'd be good for the BBL for a London team in particular to to come in and fail. I think it was better to draw a line under it and see if there was an opportunity to do it in the future. Talking of the BBL, how would you? compare the league now to back when you were with the Leopards in the in the late 1990s uh, and early 2000s? Well, obviously there's less money in it and there's less TV coverage. Um, but in many ways, at that stage, there was probably far too many American players, um, which meant money was going out of the game. There were some great owners, you know, Ed Simons and, and people like that were great owners. Uh, Barry Marsh and people like that, the Leopards really did put an enormous amount of resources in the basketball um, was that sustainable well the answer to that is no it wasn't because obviously the league changed dramatically and it obviously made a decision to, that, that meant it wasn't on TV and all that type of stuff but I think the work that the BBL does now and I think that the increasing number of opportunities there are for English players and the, the, the realisation that you've got to have a sustainable programme uh, really bodes well um, for the professional league and, and in some some ways, the, the the lack of finance across Europe, because um, apart from the very very rich, independently rich teams, every league in Europe is struggling. Means that the, means that the BBL gets closer. Uh, you know, in the wrong way around. You know, the, 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 some leagues in Europe that the finance and the money and the salaries that they're offering are, are much closer now to the sort of finance models and the salaries that the BBL offers, and that's an opportunity to actually raise the standard because you know it's more competitive. There are, there are players that um, there are perhaps better players that might consider playing in the BBL than, uh, because the BBL can afford them. Um, but I think that the, ultimately the BBL, with its moves to try and support British players, British qualified players, has to be a very positive step. How do you think they're doing that? Because to me, like I look, I see I see Leicester doing a lot of stuff, um, but outside of that, like obviously New, Newcastle with the Northumbria link as well, maybe a little bit. Uh, but outside of that, I don't know if that many clubs are doing stuff. It'd be really easy, Sam, for me to, for for people like me to say, "Oh, English players should play," and I will say, "English players should play." And I I would argue very very strongly that um, there are Leicester is a good example of the way that you know they've got some players there that are, they've invested in some younger players and British players, and those British players you would hope are going to start to play. Um, uh, Newcastle have always had uh, one or two English players that have been made, you know, been factors. But it, it's not something that I mean, and obviously Manchester, for for all sorts of reasons, um, have got pretty much an all British team. Um, 
uh, I think it's um, it's very difficult. This is, goes back to this thing I was talking about before in terms of is it a federation level or a club led led scenario? It's very di- very difficult for a, a BBL team, I imagine, um, to get that balance between trying to win, which is what they have, they're trying to do, and trying to use players to de- you know get, in- get young English players to develop. I think the two things go hand in hand, but. If you're the head coach and you're an owner of a BBL team, you want to see success on the floor straight away. But if you look at the sustainable programs, the, the Leicesters and the Newcastles, there's that balance. And I think that's the sort of model that, and if you look at all the successful teams across Europe, they have the homegrown player that the crowd relates to better, that everybody in the crowd can be. So there's a commercial reason for doing it. Um, I think back to when Leopards were. Were, were winning things and Ronnie Baker was the, the most sold out pitcher we had in our club shop because every kid could be Ronnie Baker um, so there's all sorts of reasons to do it I think ultimately you look at the Spanish and the French leagues etc they almost prioritise homegrown players uh, and I think if, if we can get to that point great so they get their homegrown players on their roster first and then they add the foreign player to them I it's a, in some programmes it looks like it's the, a little bit the other way around but so I think the BBL is moving significantly in the right direction. There are a lot of young English players. As I said, I think financially we can probably start to afford them. It's good to see things like two-year contracts being promoted on the you know, BBL teams and stuff, so there's a bit of continuity. So I think that the, the signs are good. Um, it's very, as I say, it's really, we can easily we can sit here and knock the BBL. Everybody does, and I think it's really unfair, but... I still, it's a, can English players get to play? That's the key, and I think they've got to earn the right to play, but I think there's got to be a desire to play. How long do you think it would take? Like, you know, obviously, I, you know, it is a long-term thing, but how, how many years do you think it would take with everything being right or everything being put in place now for things to significantly improve and, and be in the place that we want them to be? It's a really hard question because you don't know the financial models, but... And it depends what, what you and I are talking about here in terms of how we want them to be. Um, I want them to be where we were in in the sort of mid, uh, mid-80s, early 90s, where British teams were competing in Europe. Uh, because I think for the overall game, it's a bit cyclic. If we can get teams competing in Europe regularly, uh, the game gets better, the kids improve, and the kids see a different level of basketball. If we don't, you know, if we can go a little bit, uh, a little bit down that Lithuanian route that means that they reduce the number of players that go to college in the States. Uh, I'm not saying it's not the right option for some kids, but I think at the moment it's a bit like everybody goes. Uh, um, I think that um, how long would it take us to get to playing in Europe? Well, you could play in Europe next year, but that would be like Guildford did. Um, so I think it's, you can't play in Europe unless you have enough homegrown players or an enormous amount of money. Um, and I think the homegrown players is a bit easier to achieve than the enormous amount of money. So if, if a team wanted to, I don't think people like um, Leicester and Newcastle, I don't think they're too far away from being able, and, and Worcester with its facility, I don't think they're too far away from being able to compete in things like the Euro Challenge now, um, if there's homegrown players, because that's, that's your continuity and that's your sustainability. Where do you think the money's going to come from in the long term? <laughs> Sorry. If I knew, if you or I knew that, we wouldn't be almost sitting here. I think it's still that combination between you know we're still chasing sponsors. We're we're not making enough money on gates. That's understandable. Um, Why is that understandable? Well, because it's not on TV enough. You know, the Eurosport coverage is good, uh, but it's you know once a week. Um, people used to go to watch five thousand people used to go watch London Towers at, at Wembley because they they saw them on. They saw them on telly, and they were playing in Europe. And they had that ridiculous scenario of having to try and come up with a European roster while the rest of the league had five Americans and whatever else. Well, that's not the case anymore because the BBL has its rules about British players, and you need your British qualified players. So um, where are we going to get our money from? Where does any, any sport in this country get its money from if it doesn't kick a football around? If it kicks a football around, you seem to find people just put money into stuff. Do you think you know? There's obviously this, this all part, this all this uh, this basketball party parliamentary group. Do you think it needs to be a political thing where they're trying to get more money from the government and, and those streams are opened up? Or I think it's joint. I think you have to do that. Um, 
even in the very strong professional leagues in Europe, you know, the, the Madrid government, because we know, obviously, we're quite close to the scenarios in Spain, the Madrid government get, and, and, and uh, gives loads of money to, to basketball clubs to develop basketball. But at the top end, they've obviously got commercial sponsorship and means they can do both. I think it's, it's a two-way thing. You know, if, if sports like um, sports like netball and, uh, and and rugby league and all those school, uh, sports that obviously it's so much more per head than, than basketball does, um, whereas basketball's in the areas where government says it wants sport to be, you know, in the inner cities, in multicultural backgrounds, etc., 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 all that stuff that has been put out there all the time. I think it's too much. I think it's very wrong for people to try and say we don't need um government money or we're going to try and get away with not having government money because I think relationship with government is important it's quite a difficult relationship to manage but we need sport England money we need sport England sport England needs basketball because basketball is a great vehicle for some of the projects that it promotes in the same way that and again the BBL's led all that work with a parliamentary group the, the BBL's led all that work and you know there's, there's, there's critical things about BBL everyone's got those sort of comments but they're the people who set that group up you know, they've tried to work with GB to get more parliamentary people and more, more political support, and that can only help. It can't be an either-or. We, uh, we're not in a scenario where we can say, no, we don't need your money. I mean, it's crazy. Um, and I think we've got lots of good stories to tell, you know, like all of the reasons that Region Teach gets money, the reasons that the BBL Foundation got money, and the reason that EB gets money. They're, they're good stories. We, 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 seem, we think we tend to focus a little bit on the bad stories. So talking about good stories, what is your best basketball story? Is there a game, a player, a moment that sticks out in memory that you think, you know, this was a special moment um, where you've seen something amazing? Uh, my best basketball story um, as such, um, oh, most of my best basketball, lots of my best basketball stories were related to the, the World Invitational club basketball thing that was at Crystal Palace the WICB which was the best club tournament in the world at the time can you explain uh, exactly what that is I've heard a lot of people talk about it and I don't know the exact specific all right. well what, when when the uh, in around the um, early 80s um, when Crystal Palace was uh, flying the flag if you want for, for British basketball and European competitions um, a guy called David Last who did a, you know, again did, did a lot of good things um in, in, in cooperation with Phillips at the time, set up this World Invitational Club basketball where ideally you would invite clubs from around the world that had women's, men's and junior teams. So that's why it was a club competition, not just an individual team. Now, obviously, not all the teams that came did have all those three teams. but um, So that was the premise of the competition. So over New Year and at that stage, with the way that the basketball calendar was, there was always a gap around Christmas and New Year, so Real Madrid had a tournament at Christmas, and Crystal Palace had a tournament over New Year. And because of the sponsorship and because of the tie-ups with a number of different clubs through Crystal Palace's uh, playing in the European Cup, you know, teams like Maccabi, um, teams uh, uh, Milan, um, teams even um, you know from Argentina, from from Brazil, um, University of North Carolina on the men's side with James Worthy, uh, University of Tennessee, coached by Pat Smith, Pat Head. Um, those, those teams came to the WICB. Uh, it was one of the tournaments. FIBA used it to trial rules and everything. It was the most important basketball tournament going on in January every single year, over five days at Crystal. It was, just like a, it was almost a pilgrimage every year for basketball, packed every day, basketball from 9 o'clock till 10 o'clock. So my bad, 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 bad. My most memorable, if you want, funniest or whatever you want to say or notable, um, is that uh, Bracknell, as they were, were playing against Milan, and Milan had actually just signed Antoine Carr, and that was the first tournament he was the games he was going to play. But Mike D'Antoni was at Milan, and uh, Bracknell had a Dan Calandrillo was a big scorer. Dan Calandrillo in that game had about thirty or whatever else, and Milan had almost got off the plane and played the game. And um, this is when. Referees didn't have to touch the ball as it went out of bounds. And so, like, the game was on that was really close. And uh, Mike D'Antoni had fouled out. The ball gets knocked out of bounds in front of the uh, Milan bench. And Mike D'Antoni, from the bench, 
picks it up, passes it to one of his teammates down the other end of the floor, scores a layup. No one in the gym even spotted it. Well, some people did, but no one else, no one really knows. So they had to replay the game. So I can, I can remember showing up at something like 8.30 in the morning to see Bracknell get beat again, though, by Milan. But Mike D'Antoni, who had already found out, got an assist from the bench, um, which was quite an interesting one. <laughs> so what happened with the tournament? Why, why did it stop existing? They, I mean, this, this tournament was live on BBC TV before. So guys like Bob Wilson, who used to host Grandstand and stuff, was actually at the WICB for two years, running like the show from there and it was like the finals were live on, on, on Saturday Grandstand you know so it was huge um, and so there was money for it and then obviously sponsors pulled out but then also the other thing is that the basketball calendar got fuller and fuller and fuller so to attract the best teams became more and more difficult uh, so you'd never do it now because you know the EuroLeague teams are playing the week before Christmas and playing the week after New Year so for them to then up and go um, to London for a tournament is debatable Maybe you could run it pre-season, uh, something like that. But it was a, a thing for the time, I think. It worked at the time. And if you talk to any, as you say, everyone who was involved or was in um, around that tournament will always remember that tournament as being sort of their introduction to top-level basketball. What other things, you know, back back then, before I was on the scene, like what are the other things that stick out about basketball? Like how different was it? It seems like culturally it was a much bigger thing. It was much wi- more widely accepted. Um, but were there other big events or tournaments or or just just things in general that were big big difference? Uh, I think it was much more main, mainstream. The wrong word. We're mainstream now. It was much more. There was there was not there was not as much sport on TV. So the finals at Wembley were always on the BBC. So, you know, like, going to Wembley had the, it had the same feel as any other major sports event. You know, like you're going to Wembley was like, it doesn't matter if it was basketball, football, whatever, whatever, whatever. Going to Wembley was a big thing. So having the, the finals at Wembley was always a big, a big, big deal. Um, you know, even when the, you know, there was the, the, the new the, the BBL as it, as it first became then, there was, there was still the one big finals event so the sport's a little bit more fragmented now in terms of events, I think. I mean, I think the BBL's objective is to try and get some joint men's and women's. Um, but it's just a different, um, a different, it's just different now. It's just there's so much more sport on TV and ironically basketball's on less. So um, was it more mainstream? If you've got the scenario where Crystal Palace were playing Real Madrid in the quarterfinal of the European Cup, that's going to be big news anywhere. You know, so, and the fact that they won the first leg, again, is big news. Uh, you know, to think of London Lions beating Real Madrid in a one-leg of a two-legged game there is not comprehensible, and that's not no disrespect to anybody. The game has moved on, and, and the Bosman stuff really messed that up for you know for people from one perspective because you don't have to have your own grown players and you all that type of stuff. So, um, I don't know it's. Uh, it's a, those you know regular league games used to be events, and now they're not events because it's not on TV every week. Um, uh, and that's that's probably you, know, you only have to look at sports like netball and the way they've grown because they have regular live TV coverage. And the girls become a little bit more of a, all the girls in the crowd want to be like the girls on the court. Um, we don't have that at the moment. Ironically, our national teams are doing have been doing better and all that type of stuff. So. Long term, what do you think? Uh, well, what do you see in the future for British basketball over the next few years? The optimistic view is you see the players that are coming through. We've had various uh, age groups that have been A division, been very successful. There were some great young players. Uh, you'd want to see them come through. It's disappointing that Luke Nelson didn't play with the senior men. Um, you see those young players uh, coming through. And, and making our national team more sustainable and, and more and having more depth to it. Uh, you look at the current under-16 um, boys, they've got some great athletes and great talent, and you want to see them have opportunities to play with the senior team, but they've got to understand what it's about to be a senior player, and then without having a strong league, it's tough to make that known to players, because college basketball is not the same as pro basketball for me. So, um, How do I see it in the next few years? I've got to say I see it getting better because I think the BBL will get better. And if the BBL gets better, I think the sport will get better. You've got to hope that the 
the, the strategic reviews or whatever EB is doing, whatever happens to GB, whatever comes out the back end of that, just gives the game some strategic leadership regardless of funding. Um, so I think a lot comes down to how well the BBL goes. Um, and there's no point knocking it. And there's lots of high-profile people who knock it. That's that's our pro league. We have to make our pro league better. And I think BBL is is doing that. There are some good people. I mean, you know, the, the Newcastle is a huge program. Leicester and, and, and people like that are trying to do everything they can. And then uh, anytime we knock it, it doesn't help. So. And I understand that you're uh, standing for EB director later this year. Why? What is the motivation? I'm fed up with people moaning about stuff. Um, but standing on the sidelines and moaning. And I don't know if I'll change anything. I don't know if I can have an impact. I think it's an important time for basketball. If I'm fortunate enough to be uh, elected, um, then I want to try, if you want, to help as much as I can as a board member, as well as being a barking, etc., to try and make the game grow and try and show some strategic leadership and it's so there's so many people stand on the sidelines and criticize. You know, get involved. You know, we got the, the, the other people should stand for the board if they've got things to offer and things to say, and if they think it's if they think it needs to change its direction, then put themselves in that position. Um, you know, I, I know Jeff Jones really well, and you know, I'm very like-minded in lots of ways, and I would hope that with people like Jeff and. Uh, other people on the board that EB can whatever the result of the GB debates are EB is going to have a huge role and I, I just want to try and help How much a role does the board have? I'm a, so how does it all work? They have monthly meetings with the Two monthly Two monthly and then they advise and Well the, theoretically as any board to do they should be making decisions um, That then the federation then carries out Yeah you've got the professional officers should you know in the same way that uh, any elected group there, the, the ultimate responsibility for the decisions that the association, you know, England basketball makes is with the board. And then they've got obviously their head of paid service, Hugh Morgan as the chief exec who implements that and makes recommendations and comes up with proposals and, and like any, any organisation. I think they're a little bit too invisible at the moment. I mean, I, I think there's a distinct lack of... Um, uh, profile for EB's board at all the events the last the last year when you know I think Jeff was on one but I, I can't remember seeing many members of of the EB's board at events uh, I think it's important that they're there I think it's important that they're that they're a face I think it's important they show their support by being at events um, but there was a there was a there, there are a bit anonymous at the moment and that's no disrespect to anybody but uh, I don't know how connected they are to the, to the sport. So if if you were to be elected, what are your like what what are be, what are the things that you would like to change? What are the things you would like to lead lead on and and, and see? Um, well, I think I've got experience in in in, in obviously the international elite um, development, the, the 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 process that the game's going through across the world through the work I do with 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 uh, with FIBA TV and the Euroleague TV uh, and tournaments etc cetera, etc. Cetera, then um, I think. Uh, uh, I think I have a lot of uh, experience to offer from that perspective. Um, and I've got basketball knowledge. I think the board has got some you know, some non-executive directors who are bringing specific business skills in, which is really important. And I think that as long as you marry that with some uh, strong basketball knowledge, you've got a new chief exec or a relatively new chief exec who's got a business background in other sports. So he's, he's got obviously experience and uh, skills to bring. And I do also think... The disconnection bit, the disengagement, if that's what it is. Um, people who are playing the sport, coaching the sport, working within the sport, need to feel they've got um, a, a way into the ball as well in terms of being able to uh, make representations to the board or to members of the board about you know what their views are. And I'm not sure that at the moment is as good as it should be. And if I can help that front, then great. You'd love to get more people engaged and start. As I say, there's no point sitting on the sideline and whinging. Okay, so we're coming towards the end because I'm aware that I always end up talking too long on these things going on for ages. Um, I want to ask you some quick-fire questions uh, just to hear your thoughts. So starting with, who is the best junior basketball player, male and female, that you've ever seen? Andrew Congreves. 
when Andrea Congreves was 14 and she dunked a tennis ball and when she was uh, um, playing in a, the National Cup final for us at Crystal Palace at 15-16 and playing for the GB national team in the Olympic qualifying tournament at 17. Um, male or female, she's probably the most complete basketball player at that age that I've, I've ever seen. Um, I was, uh, uh, yeah, I was also, I think, on the boys' side, the best junior player I've ever seen. A lot of talented kids. See, like um, Pete Scalabri was a really good junior. I'm going to see Pete as a junior. I'd have to say that I was also impressed with people like going back further. You know, Paul Stimson was a great junior and, and again played for the seniors when he was very young. Um, uh, and you know what? It's the other thing is that um, Josh Steele is not far behind some of those guys in terms of his uh, knowledge of the game and the way he can implement it. Um, maybe he's not a standout individual. Um, and I used to love watching Ronnie Baker play as a junior because Ronnie, as he did all the way through his career, had, had some had huge balls. You know, he just he didn't care what who it was. He would take on anybody, he'd make big shots, he'd do whatever. No, he was... And, and you know, at the end of the day, anybody can be Ronnie Baker because, you know, he's not big. And he's just worked his work very, very hard and was, a, was just a great, great young player. Um, so, yeah, those, those sort of people. But Congaree's by far the most complete player. And then right now, top young players to keep an eye on. Uh, I'm assuming that Josh Steele is one of them, as you just mentioned him. Yeah, Josh is, Josh is one of them to keep an eye on. I think uh, Jules, the guy, you know, the guy that's um, in the 16s. Um, Sam, uh, Jeff Mathias, got, some, got lots and lots of upsides. And then females? Females. Um, everyone's going to say Savannah. Wilkinson, because um, and Savannah is an exceptionally talented young player. He's got a pretty decent work ethic. She's got a great support mechanism. Her family's great. Her sisters, everybody's great around her. So she um, she could be anything. And, and girls are a bit unfortunate because I always end up comparing them to Congreves, which is really unfortunate because you know like Congreves can play one to five and and did play one to you know one spot one to spot five. And, but Savannah could be anything I mean she's 15 years old playing minutes in the top women's league she could be anything so she has some real um, she has some real upsides and she could be very 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 good um, I, I'm going a little bit older I don't think we've seen the best yet of um, Shakira Joseph you know, I think she could be when, when she finishes school she could be a serious pro um, I think uh, you know you, you don't make all-star teams at junior tournaments and compete at A division levels without being talented. I think she's got again she's got some real upsides. Um, so yeah, I think that yeah that's sort of those uh, best or favourite British coach. British coach. <laughs> best or favourite British coach. Uh, I, I can include Finch on that, can't I? Because Finch, uh, Finch was Finch was naturalised. I, I like the way Chris Finch coaches. I like Chris Finch full stop. I think he's a very honest, straightforward guy. I thought he was a very good coach. He was in Europe. Um, he was always very, very good to me in terms of uh, you know having a support relation. You know, being supportive. Um, British coach, though, proper British coach. My best, the best British coach. Um, Bill Bessett was seriously decent as a coach. That was back in the day. Um, more recently, that's a good question because I like you know, Tony's good. Tony Garbelletto is a good coach. Uh, Paul James is a good coach. But my favourite coach, um, you stumped me, Sam. On my favourite British coach. I mean, I've gone too far back in the day. It's okay. You can you can hit take hit me up with it later. I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll as soon as I think of one. I'll... And then finally, if you could change one thing, uh, if you could change one thing about British basketball right now, what would it be? 
Last night's result. <laughs> I think it's so important that we qualify for Eurobasket. Uh, but if I could change one thing. Oh, I, I go on and on and on about the need for the quality of the British League. So if, I, if we could get the, the, the British League with British players on TV, that would be it. I think there's so many things that would benefit from it. Perfect. Well, look, that's been uh, it's been great. I've even kept it to an hour, which is record. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I have no doubt that I will see you very soon. Thank you so much, Mark. All right.